We must believe everything or deny everything. And who among you, I ask, would dare to deny everything? To him, the choice is clear. He would rather take the the nuance, take the things that he doesn't understand with everything that he does, than have the void of, of this nothingness. To say no is to wipe it all off of the map, Thanos style. Snap your fingers. You can say no. Snap your fingers. It goes away. Or you can say yes. Apparently here is already like putting his money where his mouth is. And he says, these are the things that I have chosen to subscribe to and believe and teach and preach to you. And I have chosen to be all in. Whether or not I'm wrong, I'm accepting the consequence of having to deal with the dissonance of a God who has not yet answered. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Ethan and Issa about the second half of Camus' novel, The Plague. The quote of the day is maybe the shortest I've ever shared. It is from Camus. It's actually from the extended version of his quite long essay called The Myth of Sisyphus, only a small portion of which we've read for this class. In this essay, he says, quote, To create is to live twice which I love as a reminder of several things we've talked about this course. Zara Nafisi's reminder that a novel is a sensory world that we get to inhabit and walk around, as well as the idea that we get to live vicariously through fictional characters and thus acquire the wisdom that they acquire without necessarily having to endure all of the obstacles or trauma or suffering that they endure. And for a discussion about a novel that certainly helps me feel as if I've lived twice... Let's go into that chat with Ethan and Issa about the conclusion of Camus' novel, The Plague. Hi, Michael. Hi, Hi Ethan. Hi. W- what we're about to do is probably going to be a kind of marathon that we have to run at a sprinter's pace. I want to do something slightly different this time and read and, and linger longer over several pages. So I really would like to get through those pages and then I really would like to have time to talk about the swimming and I really would like like to have time to talk about love at the end. It's, it's a lot. It's too much. So with that, I think I'll just dive right in. I will make sure that I don't do all the talking, of course. Otherwise, why, why force you guys to be here? I want you to co-teach. Of course, that's the point. Let's turn to page 213. And I wanted to really, this is pressing and sad, but I really wanted to look at this scene in an extended way where the boy dies. So I'll start reading on page 214 and I'll interrupt myself from time to time with questions and please shut me up with your answers. Yeah. I'll start reading in the middle of 214. They had already seen children die. For many months now, death has had shown no favoritism, but they had never yet watched a child's agony minute by minute as they had now been doing since daybreak. Needless to say, the pain inflicted on these innocent victims had always seemed to them to be what in fact it was an abominable thing. But hitherto, they had felt its abomination in, so to speak, an abstract way. They had never had to witness over so long a period the death throes of an innocent child. And just then, the boy had a sudden spasm, as if something had bitten him in the stomach and uttered a long, shrill wail. For moments that seemed endless, he stayed in a queer, contorted position, his body racked by convulsive tremors. It was as if his frail frame were bending before the fierce breath of the plague breaking under the reiterated gusts of fever. Then the storm wind passed, there came a lull, and he relaxed a little. The fever seemed to recede, 
leaving him gasping for breath on a dank, pestilential shore. He continues here. Eyelids get big. Spasms continue. He keeps suffering instead of simply just dying. Mercifully, he keeps suffering. And at the bottom of 215, Father Panlu, who had slumped against the wall, said in a low voice, so if he is to die, he will have suffered. He will have suffered longer. The priest there coming to terms with the fact that the universe doesn't seem interested in mercy. You know, if there's a God in charge of this, that God does not seem interested in cutting short the sufferings of the child. Do you have any, I'll, I'm going to keep reading here, but I can already feel myself uh, hogging the mic too long. Why is Camus spending, I don't know, a total of five or six pages on these moments, the death throes of a child? Why spend so long on this? I know it's over 200 pages in, but this is when the book really starts to get real. It seems up to this point that we talk about this plague in terms of statistics. And um, he talks about abstraction and how it's, it's the, the idea of the plague and how it affects people's everyday lives. But this is so important that we focus on this because if not, we become disconnected from the real human suffering that individuals are actually going. They're not numbers. They're, they're mm. individuals who feel it. This may come out a little patchy because it's like, Kind of another topic in general, and it's meant to be that way. Indeed, I yeah. feel like just the exploration of any child's suffering, let alone death, is the achiest and easiest way to make a connection with the human heart. Um, mm. Whether you're coming from a parental perspective or a sibling's perspective or just someone who cares, it's like like children are the light of life. So when you see them in a story suffering in any way, it's an easy connection, ideally. When I was reading this chunk in particular, it's like, the explanation, the thorough explanation of the suffering this child is going through, not only in an odd way is a reverence for the pain and it's calling attention to it, but also, um, at least for me, like I, I was reading through it and remembering so many people that I love who have lost a child or friends of mine who have passed at a young age. And up to this point, it's like the conversation of death has been pertinent and sort of abstract. But this is the moment when he decides to make it as real as possible mm -hmm. by demanding that you almost for a moment suffer through mm. the ache with the kid. Very good. It, it takes an abstraction and makes it particular. We have this cover in which there are dots, you know, it's kind of the vector of the plague spreading. And all those dots, I suppose, represent a person. But these aren't just dots, you know, as you two are both saying, they are humans with faces and souls, and some of them are very young and innocent, you know, and they have, and, and we, we have to watch them suffer. I like your comedies about witnessing. We shouldn't get to feel exempt from having to see this. You know, we shouldn't get to feel like this is optional for us to look at. Let me keep reading here. I'll flip the page to 216. I'll start maybe like five lines down, and then at one with the tortured child, he struggled to sustain, so this is now Ryu, he, he struggled to sustain him with all the remaining strength of his own body, but linked for a few moments, so he's holding this child, linked for a few moments, the rhythms of their heartbeats soon fell apart, the child escaped him, and again he knew his impotence, then he released the small, thin wrist and moved back to his place. In the small face, rigid, I'm now skipping the middle of the next paragraph, in the small face, rigid as a mask of grayish clay, slowly the lips parted, and from them rose a long, incessant scream, hardly varying with his respiration and filling the ward with a fierce, indignant protest, so little childish that it seemed like a collective voice issuing from all the sufferers there. Rhea clenched his jaws. Taru looked away. 
Rambert went and stood beside Castel, who closed the book lying on his knees. Penlu gazed down at the small mouth, fouled with the swords of the plague, and pouring out the angry death cry that had sounded through the ages of mankind. He sank on his knees, and all present found it natural to hear him say in a voice hoarse but clearly audible across that nameless, never-ending wail, My God, spare this child. But the wail continued without cease. And the other sufferers began to grow restless. So here we have a prayer that goes unanswered. The child keeps suffering. We'll skip a few paragraphs here. But then suddenly the other sufferers fell silent. And now the doctor grew aware that the child's wail, after weakening more and more, had fluttered out into silence. Around him, the groans began again, but more faintly, like a far echo of the fight that now was over, for it was over. Castell had moved around to the other side of the bed and said the end had come. His mouth still gaping, but silent now, the child was lying among the tumbled blankets, a small, shrunken form, with the tears still wet on his cheeks. So they talk for a while. What effect does this boy's death have on the people who witness it? Especially I want to focus on Penlu, Father Penlu. Let me let me ask you this question. This is on the bottom of 218. He says, that sort of thing is revolting, speaking of this death, because it passes our human understanding. But perhaps we should love what we cannot understand. Rhea straightened up slowly. He gazed at Penlu, summoning to his gaze all the strength and fervor he could muster against his weariness. Then he shook his head. No, father, I have a very different idea of love. And until my dying day, I shall refuse to love a scheme of things in which children are put to torture. A shade of disquietude crossed the priest's face. Ah, doctor, he said sadly, I just realized what is meant by grace. Now, let's pause here and ask, what is it? I don't know the answers to these questions. I find this passage quite cryptic. What has the priests just learned about grace? And what does it mean for him to say, perhaps we should love what we cannot understand? The death of innocent children is incomprehensible, so we should love it? There's something there that isn't making sense to me, and I'm <laughs> I'm asking for help. What is going on in the priest's mind right now? Do you have any insights? Again, this is coming from someone with religious theology background, and I recognize that not everybody has that. Um, but for me, I won't get into it just because it's a lot of personal stuff. But from a really young age, a lot of my most intimate experiences with what I did understand to be a heavenly kind of love, love a godlike kind of love, came in moments of greatest extremity as a child, where there was a lack all around me, um, circumstantial lack. And there were things that I couldn't control, things that those around me, the people that I loved, sometimes couldn't even control. But in those moments, bitter as they were, the God that, at least for me, that I, I believe in, that's when I felt closest to him. And I never felt punished by the deity that I subscribe to. Mm. Um, but I would say that for me, the uh, my most intimate moments of feeling a heavenly presence were when I had such an absence of answers and that the only thing that could fill that void was an existence of a being that knew more than I did. Mm. And those moments happened when I was young. Um, a young child around like 12 and 13. Um, so for me, I like, I believe really thoroughly in this concept of the things that I understand the least make the most space for a demand 
for me to rely on this deity that I love and who I believe loves me. And this passage in particular, right when he says, right when he says um, that sort of thing is revolting because it passes our human understanding, but perhaps we should love what we cannot understand. Cannot understand. Maybe think of a quote by Neil A. Maxwell. And I may, I may lose people here, but I'm going to share no, it. No, go for it. Keep going. Um, so he is at the funeral of a young father and he shared this message. He said, there are in the gospel warm and cuddly doctrines. And then there are some that are just outright wintry doctrines. One of them, frankly, is that we cannot approach real consecration without passing through appropriate clinical experiences because we do not achieve consecration in the abstract. And I would go so far as to say you don't attain grace in the abstract um, or love in the abstract. It must be a real and literal and tangible thing in order for it to be to have any weight. And then he goes on to say the very act of choosing to be a human of love um, can bring us to a certain special suffering. All who will can come to know what Paul called the fellowship of his suffering. If we are serious about our discipleship or our love for humanity, whatever we'd like to put there, Jesus will eventually request each of us to do those very things which are most difficult for us to do. That's so great. Belief in God brings us to suffering. <laughs> what a great thing to say. This does not exempt us from suffering. In fact, it, it ushers us into a new quote-unquote, special kind of suffering. Yes, I want to keep that in the front of our minds as we continue, because that is an insight I think Camus is sharing with us in passages that we're about to get to. Ethan, where does your mind go when you read the, these bits? It's funny. Um, I feel that I had a very different reaction to Issa. Um, good. That's good. That, um, that's why we're gathering here today. Like, to be honest, when I first read the line, we should love what we cannot understand right after this child dies, I like took a step back and I was like, whoa, like, why are you saying this, um, Pan Lu? That is, that's not what Rhea needs to hear right now. I don't think that I was in the frame of mind to hear that as a reader. Um, and so especially like someone experiencing it, as you both discussed exactly like the theology that he could be conveying here it's it's made more sense to me but that was definitely my the different like the understanding and um peace was definitely not my initial reaction to this yeah. passage i feel like my brain is divided between Rieu's reaction and Penlu's. you know i i i totally get why Rieu would say what he says Doubt in a God who would let this happen is normal. It's to be expected, you know? How could we expect not to have doubts about a God who would let such things happen? So that's half of my brain. The other half of my brain is where Pen Lu goes. Grace, yeah, there's this, wonder, this wonderfully ambiguous word, grace. Because I think what happens to Pen Lu next in the second sermon might give us some insight into how he's using this word and what this word exactly means. So let's go to the second sermon. I'm turning the page now, 220. Yeah, maybe like 10 lines down, but from the day on which he, Father Penlu, saw the child die, something seemed to change in him and his face bore traces of the rising tension of his thoughts. When one day he told Rio with a smile that he was working on a short essay entitled, Is a Priest Justified in Consulting a Doctor? Rhea had gathered that something graver lay beyond, behind the question than the priest's tone seemed to imply. Then, if we turn the page, he starts giving this second sermon, page 222. 
It was, this is kind of dead middle center of the page. It was in a cold, silent church surrounded by a congregation of men exclusively, which is a strange detail, that Ria watched the father climb into the pulpit. He spoke in a gentler, more thoughtful tone than on the previous occasion and several times was noticed to be stumbling over his words. A yet more noteworthy change was that instead of saying you, he now said we. Do we want to pause over those implications? Why is this a detail worthy of being noticed? Can we take a step back and look at, because we have to look at Penlu's first sermon because of how kind of ridiculous it is in certain ways, how, how disconnected he feels from the common people, how he talks about the way that this plague is a benevolent, uh, it's almost given by a benevolent God for everyone's benefit. And it's, it's, yeah, it just feels so disconnected from so outlandish that someone would even believe that. And then he comes in here and, and now he's saying we, it's, he has finally suffered with the Mm -hmm. people. And so now his whole perspective, I mean, we'll see that his perspective is very different. Instead of um, accusing his congregation in a kind of self-righteous, you are sinners, and this has been brought upon you for your sins. There's no, there's no difference between him and his congregation. He is a human in the same human boat as them. So he starts talking and he says, he starts saying, he starts saying things like, I'm at the top of page 223, appearances notwithstanding, all trials, however cruel, worked together for good to the Christian. And indeed, what a Christian should always seek in his hour of trial was to discern that good in what it consisted and how best he could turn it to account. I'll skip a paragraph. His interest, Ria's interest in the sermon quickened when, in a more emphatic tone, the preacher said that there were some things we could grasp as touching God and others we could not. There was no doubt as to the existence of good and evil, and as a rule, it was easy to see the difference between them. The difficulty began when we looked into the nature of evil, and among things evil he included human suffering. Thus, we had apparently needful pain and apparently needless pain. We had Don Juan cast into hell, so, you know, Sinners who clearly deserve to be cast into hell. That's easy to understand logically. But then we have a child's death. And truth to tell, nothing was more important on earth than a child's suffering. The horror it inspires in us and the reasons we must find to account for it. In other manifestations of life, God made things easy for us. And thus far, our religion had no merit. Isn't this interesting? When life is easy, religion doesn't really count or matter. You know what I mean? Uh, But in this respect, he put us, so to speak, with our backs to the wall. Indeed, we all were up against the wall that plague had built around us. And in its lethal shadow, we must work out our salvation. Uh, Let me try to go quickly here through this next paragraph. He, Father Penler, refused to have recourse to simple devices enabling him to scale that wall. But how could he give that assurance when to tell the truth? He knew nothing about it, etc., etc. No, he, Father Penler would keep faith with that great symbol of all suffering, the tortured body on the cross. I'm going to pause there. Father Penlu is announcing the importance of looking at Jesus on the cross, not Jesus resurrected, not Jesus pre-death, pre-crucifixion, Jesus on the cross. He's advocating that we stare hard at this symbol of suffering. Any insights as to why? Why is this the symbol to which he now wants to divert his congregation's attention. I'm with Father Penlu here, and I think we should be looking at this more. I think we should be looking at this more. Why? Why am I saying that? 
Um, I have a thought. Yes, please. The first is in reference to a professor of mine, and I've done this before. His name's Dean Duncan. He uh, once said that Christianity lives in a blessed paradox, and that ultimately that paradox is what introduces us to the doctrines we need the most. And similarly, C.S. Lewis once said that the truths we need the most are hidden behind the doctrines we least like, right. um, which knits straight in. And for Penelou, he at least at least it seems to me like he's trying to make as real and literal for himself as possible the request to t- to take up his own cross um, right. to be with the savior in his garden and on on that cross with him um and doing what we what i even in our own theology i understand the christianity to be and that is true christianity mourning with those that mourn and standing mm-hmm. with those that stand in need of comfort and finally at this point has made such a turn that he's determined to take upon the suffering himself, which leads a little bit into something we'll probably talk about a little bit later. Very good. About, um, about Penelope wanting to wanting to experience the suffering to its fullest. Yes. Uh, but rather than talking the talk, here he seems to be so determined to walk the walk so that both the children that he's discussed and he's seen suffer and the people who are aching on their behalf are not suffering alone. That's great. Ethan, any thoughts to add? As as we're talking, I'm just realizing how much there's just so there's so many good passages in this book that we won't be able to get to. But my mind goes to that conversation between Tulu and um, Rio, where he asks him he asks him if he believes in God, and he says no, and then he asks him all these questions about you know his life view, I guess, and then at the end he's like, what you, what taught you all these things? And it's interesting that Rio responds with suffering. An, like an atheist responds with suffering. And then Pan Lu, the, the father of this parish, is also focusing on suffering. And so it's mm. like Camus is trying to teach us here that it doesn't matter what, you're, what you believe, suffering is still the ultimate teacher. What, those are both extremely great comments. Um, there is a kind of leveling. Suffer, suffering is the great leveler. You know, it affects believers and non-believers, and it teaches believers and non-believers, and I think it teaches believers and non-believers the same thing. Why do some religious traditions focus more on the cross? Because it teaches us something. It teaches us that not even God is exempt from intense suffering. So if not even God is exempt from it, we shouldn't be resentful or question it when it happens to us. Yes, I love that reference that you make to what taught you all this? Suffering. Suffering taught me all this. Life is suffering, right? And how do we bear that burden? Well, we bear it the way that Christ bore it. You know, there's a reason we sing, I'm trying to be like Jesus, because when life does this to you, metaphorically, react in, in the same way, react in the way that he reacted. Let me keep reading. I think this is what, sorry, let me keep reading, then I interrupt myself. This is what Pan Lu must mean when he says, In the good times, religion has no merit. It's easy, like the cuddly doctrines that Esau was talking about. It's easy when your life is going well to say, isn't it it great? Isn't religion great? Doesn't it have so many cuddly doctrines? But it really has to be honest. Camus forces believers to be honest, which is why I like him so much. He forces believers to say, okay, can you still believe when it gets bad, when it gets really bad? And Penlu says, not only can we, but it's it's at the core of what Christianity is. At the center of Christianity is a picture of life getting really, really bad. So I'll keep reading. Penlu would stand fast, his back to the wall, his face, and face honestly the terrible problem of a child's agony. 
And he would boldly say to those who listen to his words today, my brothers, a time of testing has come for us all. We must believe everything or deny everything. And who among you, I ask, would dare to deny everything? What does this mean exactly? I mean, he goes on all or nothing, right? It's all or nothing. And we remember those scriptures where God says, if you are lukewarm, I will spit you from my mouth. You know, what does this mean? I think it means that Christianity is really difficult and there are a lot of answers that we don't have. um, And there are a lot of answers that we'll never have. But it seems like the suffering of um, this child that Penlu just witnessed caused him to really take a step back and be like, what, what do I believe? Uh, and what, what, uh, yeah. and why, I guess. And he seems to be saying like, consider the alternative, consider it. Right. This is not that there is no benevolent God. There is no eternal happiness, eternal bliss to him. The choice is clear. He would rather take the, the nuance, take the, things that he doesn't understand with everything that he does then have the void of, of this nothingness. I love that answer. I mean, it's either Christianity. This is not easy. This is not easy to believe everything. Kierkegaard talks about a leap of faith. It's a leap. It defies reason. It defies logic. It asks us to make sense of the suffering of innocence, innocent children Penlu is saying to me, um, there's two very difficult roads. One is, one has consequences that are more dire than the other. You, you know, I don't know. Isa, how would you weigh in here? I would say, in reference to a line that he delivers later on, not to spoil anything. But no, let's go there. The book by them. On page 227, he says, my brothers, each, each one of us must be the one who stays. Yes. And again, in reference to Dean Duncan, he said a line once, short and simple, God is in the second mile. And if you expect anything of anything that you choose in life, it's that principle of if you want anything, any of the benefits promised, you must stick with the thing. And Penelope here is basically addressing, like, if you choose it or if you don't choose it, stick with it. But, like, go all in so that if you don't choose it, you accept those consequences, whatever they be. And if you do choose it, you accept those consequences, whatever they be. And Penelope here is already, like, putting his money where his mouth is. And he says, these are the things that I have chosen to subscribe to and believe and teach and preach to you. And I have chosen to be all in. Whether or not I'm wrong, I'm accepting the consequence of having to deal with the dissonance of a God who has not yet answered. But that's what I signed up for. And then he he lives what he preaches. He just, he chooses to stay and he he implores us to do the same. So if we sign up to any theology or any belief system, even if it's choosing not to believe than we are to also tell ourselves that we are responsible for the consequences of that, whatever it be. Yeah. And who dares to deny that nothing matters? You know, who dares? We either accept everything. We accept life as it is. Here is the world. And here is what's in it. It has birds and beautiful leaves, sticky little leaves, as Ivan Karamazov would say. But it has kids dying, the most horrible death. There's this. It's called everything. (laughs) the world. And uh, you can accept it or you can say no, no thanks. To say no is to wipe it all off of the map. Thanos style, snap your fingers. You can say no, snap your fingers, it goes away. 
or you can say yes. But if you say yes, you get with the sticky little leaves, you get these dying kids. Who dares to snap his or her fingers and wipe it off the map? You know, not me, not me. So we have to love that. I think this might be what Pan Lu means when he says we have to love what we don't understand. To say yes to the world means we have to love it as a bundle. It's a package deal. That's what we love. We love the package deal. Isa. But your line also made me think of a quote from Leo F. Buscaglia, who says, the person who risks nothing, does nothing, has nothing, is nothing, and becomes nothing. He may avoid suffering and sorrow, but he simply cannot learn and feel and change and grow and love and live. Yeah. Um, I mean, Pan Lu makes some very similar comments here. Uh, But down at 225, he says, and that too was why, and here Pan Lu assured those present that it was not easy to say what he was about to say, since it was God's will, we too should will it, right? It's God's will that the universe as a package deal exists, therefore we too should will it. We shouldn't take the Thanos road, you know? Thus and thus only the Christian should face the problem squarely without pretending that suffering isn't real, without pretending there's a, there's an escape hatch. Scorning subterfuge pierce the heart of the supreme issue, the essential choice. The choice would be to believe everything so as not to be forced into denying everything. Keep going. This is to your point, Isa, the quote that you just read, the end of that top paragraph on 226. The sufferings of children were our bread of affliction, but without this bread, our souls would die of spiritual hunger. 227. Father, uh, but when he had read that chronicle, Father Penlu had found his thoughts fixed on that monk who stayed on. So it's, there are chronicles of plagues. This is the, the bit you referenced, Isa. There are chronicles of previous plagues in the Middle Ages. He reads of this monk who decided to stay and help his fellow monks despite great personal risk. When he had read that chronicle, Father Penlu had found his thought fixed on that monk who stayed on by himself despite the death of his 77 companions, and above all, despite the example of his three brothers who had fled. And bringing down his fist on the edge of the pulpit, Father Penlu cried in a ringing voice, my brothers, each of us must be the one who stays. No, we should go forward, groping our way through the darkness, stumbling perhaps at times, and try to do what good lay in our power. As for the rest, we must hold fast, trusting in the divine goodness, even as to the deaths of little children, and not seeking personal respite. Okay, I'm trying to go fast now. So there's this other story of this priest who tries to shelter himself from people suffering from a plague. And those people get so mad that they hurl the infected bodies over the wall of his hiding place. This had a lesson for us all. We must convince ourselves that there is no island of escape in time of plague. No, there was no middle course. We must accept the dilemma and choose either to hate God or to love God. And who would dare choose to hate God? But then he says, this is to Ethan's point about Christianity being hard. The love of God is a hard, is a, is a hard love. This is not solve problems, really. And as he says, you say before, it introduces new sources of suffering. The sermon ends, and I like these these responses to uh, the sermon on page 229. Teru, when told by Ryu what Pan Lu had said, remarked that he'd known a priest who had lost his faith during the war as the result of seeing a young man's face with both eyes destroyed. Pan Lu is right, Teru continued. When an innocent youth can have his eyes destroyed, a Christian should either lose his faith or consent to having his eyes destroyed. 
Pen Lu declines to lose his faith, and he will go through it with it to the end. That's what he means to say. How do you interpret Taru's interpretation, if this isn't getting too Russian dolly, of Pen Lu's sermon? Specifically, this business of what does it mean to say that if, if a Christian sees suffering, a Christian should either voluntarily undergo that same suffering or deny his faith. I think Taru's onto something. I think this is wise, but it, it's slightly counterintuitive. So what can we make of this? In a context where if life is going to exist, regardless of what you say about it, and you decide to label that there is no God, then you can't pin the source of suffering on a God who then you would claim would lack love. If like if there's an absence of God with a presence of suffering, then the suffering just exists and perhaps may not have meaning, but it also doesn't imply any sense of hardship when it comes to the person who's trying to teach you. But if you if if life exists and suffering exists regardless, and then you do claim that God is there and you acknowledge him and you let yourself see both the suffering and the God that exists, then you are admitting to a form of love that not only God requests that we go through, but that God requests that we ourselves allow. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like that in itself is an acknowledgement of we too must learn to love that way. And that in itself must be so hard. But if it's going to exist either way, then to deny that God is there is to blind ourselves or poke our eyes out and, and claim that we would rather not exist and not live as opposed to let life and let suffering mm. exist and acknowledge a God. I think I agree with Tolu to a point that I don't think that anyone has the right to lecture somebody on, on Christianity who hasn't gone through any, like some sort of like real suffering um, it's like after the trial of your faith, then you'll be able to, and, and everyone experiences suffering differently. Um, but I think the important, I think an important point that this book is trying to make is that we don't have to have our eyes gou- gouged out because as we read like from Tolu, it's funny, he kind of contradicts himself. He says life is a plague, right? And so that's the whole point of this. this I feel like it's what I took away is that this is an allegory for life. Um, That's right. Yep. And so we will all experience at some point some serious form of suffering that will prove to us the viability or like veracity of our faith. We have to earn our Christianity and we earn it by bearing one another's burdens. We earn it by suffering with those that suffer. It's like when I was a missionary, I served a mission in Russia and you know, I was 19, was lucky enough to be from a good family. I mean, my mom died right before my mission, so I knew what suffering was, but I'm pretty lucky, you know, extremely lucky, pretty spoiled. There was always food in my fridge. My parents had jobs, et cetera, et cetera, and they loved me. But man, I was teaching some people who didn't have any of that, who had the opposite. And I, in the moment and in retrospect, I always felt slightly, you should believe in God, you know? Um, God wipes the tears from all people. It's like, these are such trite truisms, such sentimental, banal. What right do I have to say to these people? I have the, I have the cure. You know, I have the solution. It's so trite. Um, Pen Lu is suggesting, I think, that to be honest Christians, we have to dispense with these trite truisms. And metaphor, not literally, of course, blind ourselves, but not blind ourselves to the blindness, not blind ourselves to the suffering and say, this is real. 
And then I think it's important that we don't go too far in that because that's exactly what Panlu does, right? He decides to let's, let's go there now. Yeah, we can. We, yeah, I don't know exactly the page number. I want to ask you. So, I mean, Ethan, I cut you off, so you'll you'll get the, the mic first here. But I I quite like Father Panlu's second sermon. I quite like how the people around him interpret it. It keeps me honest as a Christian. I like it, and it feels more compassionate. But he takes it to this extreme, right? I mean, it doesn't lead him down a good road. Isa alluded to the fact that he is so obsessed with embracing the suffering that he refuses medical help. Should we not agree with his second sermon if these are the enacted consequences of it? What are your thoughts on this kind of paradox or contradiction? I really think so. It's the should a priest consult a doctor, right? And right. I think that it's it seems like he views himself as almost yeah. It's like he has this idea, and we can see it from his first sermon. And even though he's using we in the second sermon, he still views himself as when it comes to following God, he's above everyone else, and he he has to be in his mind, right? And okay. so it's like should a priest consult a doctor? Because if I do, does that show the people? That I that I don't believe in God's will or God's timing for me. That's right. And I don't think that you have to read his sermon that way. I don't think that you do. I think that you can read it how we've read it and still accept help. Okay. Yeah. I would say for me, I read it as though Penelope is trying to prove only to himself um, that he means what he says, and because he too is trying to comprehend all of the circumstances, all all, all of the prayers that haven't been answered yet, he goes to this, this extreme. Yeah. to acknowledge with himself that he means it. But for me, when I read his sermon, I'm like, I, I feel like his actions, though they reflect for him personally what his sermon intended to say, can still be separated. And I still glean from his sermon this importance of like mourning with my brethren. So I feel like Panelou is like headed down the right direction, but because he tries to take upon himself a suffering that he was not designated or he didn't have to be designated, yeah. um, he takes it a step too far when we're meant at least I believe that we're meant to go so far as seek to understand. But just because I've been through a, a whole realm of horrendous things doesn't mean I wish it upon you in order for you to love me. Ideally, real love, <laughs> right. you looking at me and thinking, I do not understand, but I desire to be with you anyway. To say all or nothing at all, you do the Thanos snap and it gets wiped away or you accept it as is. But accepting it as is... Penlu, and he even uses this word fatalism. It's like, you, you might think I'm falling into a kind of fatalism. He calls it an act of fatalism. To assume that oh, to get the birds and the sticky leaves, I have to accept the suffering of children. There's a kind of implication there that I can't do anything about it. That I can't actually affect change in the world. So I'll just sit back and let the bad stuff happen because this is the universe. This is the plan as God intended. And I have to accept that plan. I guess it's it's meant to be this way to to be juxtaposed with Teru's view that we are like life is a plague and we are all healers, right? That's that's the whole. Yep. That everyone is volunteering. They convince Rambert to to stay to right. to not. He had the opportunity to leave, but everyone is a healer in this plague of life. And it's it's like if you don't allow yourself to be healed, if you don't allow yourself, how can you preach? that we're all supposed to heal everyone and then not allow yourself to, to yeah. be healed. He says we have to be the one that stay, but he then lets himself die. Mm -hmm. Isa. 
both yours and Ethan's comments reminded me too of a, there's a line in the film Hostels that Rosamund Pike's character delivers um, where she says, I envy the finality of death. Mm, yeah. Um, and that in itself, I feel like is a good descriptor of, uh, I don't want to call those who opt for it coward, cowards at all. I don't want to call Penelope a coward no, per no, se, yeah. but to live is a much greater challenge than default death just because you want to like let others know that you're suffering with them. In fact, to live is to commit to finding solutions for those who ache because they did not choose to. And it's almost like a mockery. (laughs) If you have the option of living or trying to live and opt out of it, when the person you are meant you are seeking to love doesn't have that choice. Excellent. Um, Speaking of people who choose to live, turn to page 256. So Taru and Ryu have seen as many horrors as Penlu has. And they have this moment where they go swimming together. This, this is the this, this is maybe one and this this novel has many hearts, but this is one of them for me. This paragraph down at 256. Once they were on the pier, they saw the sea spread out before them, a gently heaving expanse of deep piled velvet, supple and sleek as a creature of the wild. They sat down on a boulder facing the open. Slowly the waters rose and sank, and with their tranquil breathing, sudden oily glints formed and flickered over the surface in a haze of broken light. Before them, the darkness stretched out into infinity. Rhea could feel under his hand the gnarled, weather-worn visage of the rocks, and a strange happiness possessed him. Turning to Taru, he caught a glimpse on his friend's face of the same happiness, a happiness that forgot nothing, not even murder. I want a, a, a tattoo of that sentence. You know, they, they, they have found, this is Sisyphus in action, I think. They want, they are not being blind or ignorant to the pain, to evil, and yet they are not reduced to that pain. There, there, there is a broader array of experiences out there and there can be a happiness possible to us even inside the knowledge of death and suffering and evil and murder. So when I read Sisyphus, I hated it, honestly. Like, I really hate it, but, like, I didn't believe Camus' argument that, like, someone who had absolutely zero purpose besides, like, zero purpose um, could find happiness in the time that the rock was falling, right, in that conscious moment. And this is what, yeah, like you said, this is exactly what's happening in this paragraph. And this book helped me see, like, just Dr. Ria as he is continuously pushing this rock every day up this hill of up this mountain of of this plague with no sign of it ending with with people he loves dying with Taru dying with his wife dying with it comes to a point where you're like okay what is how can he still how yeah. can he go on you know um and that's where that's where the sisyphus really clicked for me because it was like he found purpose in doing something that was futile, like that, that in his mind, it might not, nothing might get better, but he was working and he was giving it his all and yep. finding these moments of consciousness. This section ends with this wonderful sentence. When they caught sight of the plague watchman, Ryu guessed that Teru, like himself, was thinking that the disease had given them a respite. And this was good, but now they must set their shoulders to the wheel again. Kemu invoking imagery of his own allegory there. Okay, can we quickly, we have five minutes. Can we quickly talk about the very end? I know there's so, like you said, Ethan, it's like, oh, I wish we could talk about that. I wish we could talk about that. There's so much great stuff. 
But what does that mean, plague? Just life, no more than that. That's a wonderful sentence that you alluded to, Ethan. This is an allegory for life. Coronavirus will go away, but this novel will never stop being relevant and applicable. So this is how it ends. So the plague finally kind of dissipates, goes away. Isn't this a wonderful sentence? Some memorial of the injustice and outrage done them might endure. They wanted to set up this memorial. And to state quite simply what we learn in times of pestilence, colon, that there are more things to admire in men than to despise. What is a human, according to Camus, a thing in which there are more things to admire than to despise? It's quite beautiful. Nonetheless, and there's always have this but, don't get the pink fuzzy bunnies out yet. Nonetheless, he knew that the tale he had to tell could not be one of a final victory. It could be only the record of what had had to be done and what assuredly would have had to be done again in the never-ending fight against terror and its relentless onslaughts despite their personal afflictions, by all who, while unable to be saints but refusing to bow down to pestilences, strive their utmost to be healers. Back to your comment, Ethan, about we get the choice. You know, we're, we're bowed down by pestilence and struggle, but we can actually be healers in those same moments too. How do you react to what happens next? That's my last question of the day. How do you react to, to the, this final paragraph? And indeed, as he listened to the cries of joy arising from the town, Rio remembered that such joy is always imperiled. He knew what those jubilant crowds did not know, but could have learned from books, that the plague bacillus never dies or dissipates for good, that it can lie dormant for years and years in furniture and linen chests, that it bides its time in bedrooms, cellars, trunks, and bookshelves, and that perhaps the day would come when, for the bane and the enlightening of men, it would rouse up its rats again and send them forth to die in a happy city. For me, it read as a call to remember my mortality. The entirety of the book's point is to address that suffering is real. Mm -hmm. It's not abstract, that it's, that it's tangible and it's something to be seen. Again, here's my intertextuality, but um, the film Minari that just came out, there's a theme in the story um, that addresses a snake. And this grandmother character in the story encourages her grandchild not to shoo the snake away. Mm. Um, she says that we must let it be seen for if we see it, we know where it is and um, we must not let it hide from us. And I feel like that principle translates over to the finality of, of life, of mortality, of both of suffering and of joy that they all come to an end. But if we can acknowledge that out in the open and recognize where it is, then we are the ones in power and have control over which side of the coin we get to experience. So acknowledging that finality is real um, and that death looms and is a part of life. Yeah. We therefore have the power to make the most of the time that we have here. When I read this paragraph, the optimism in me wanted to say that it was cynicism. Like I was just like, <laughs> why do you have to end with this? You know, we just had that beautiful sentence yeah. about how people, you know, unable to be saints, but refusing to bow down to pestilence tribes, their utmost to be healers. What if it ended there? You know? Mm. I would have felt so good, but be, I think because that's what we as humans want, we want it to end there. He has to put in this paragraph to be like, no, th that's not how life works. Yeah. There's never a time where you're just going to be able to sit back and have in this life, have prolonged peace um, or contentment, unless mm -hmm. you, understand that these bad things can happen again. 
This is true literally about viruses. Coronavirus is never going to go away, and there will be another pandemic in 10 years or in 20 or in three. You know what I mean? If this is an allegory for Nazi occupation, you know, anti-Semitism, the Nazis leave, the Nazis are defeated by the world ideologically, their ideology is repudiated. Anti-Semitism festers cannot be extinguished. It pops up. You know what I mean? Prejudice pops up again and again and again and again. Uh, religious doubt. You know, you might think that um, you've entered a period in your life where you are exempt from nihilistic thinking. I would, I would urge you to reread the, the final paragraph of this book. It will, it will come, and it will go, and it will come, and it will go, and it will come, and it will go. A flourishing life means to accept that and be prepared for these ebbs and flows, I think. And to look, as you say, Isa, to look, the, to acknowledge that the snake is real. Don't pretend it's not there. And with that, I will bid you adieu. Thank you very, very much for a great chat. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Bye. I said in the last podcast that to me, this novel is really about love. And that's why today's poem of the day is also a love poem, another of my favorites. This is by Ezra Pound, who is very loosely translating Li Po. This poem is called The River Merchant's Wife, A Letter. While my hair was still cut straight across my forehead, I played about the front gate pulling flowers. You came by on bamboo stilts playing horse. You walked about my seat playing with blue plums, and we went on living in the village of Chokan, two small people, without dislike or suspicion. At fourteen, I married my lord, you. I never laughed, being bashful. Lowering my head, I looked at the wall. Called to a thousand times, I never looked back. At fifteen, I stopped scowling. I desired my dust to be mingled with yours forever and forever and forever. Why should I climb the lookout? At sixteen, you departed. You went into far Kuto-en, by the river of swirling eddies, and you have been gone five months. The monkeys make sorrowful noise overhead. You dragged your feet when you went out. By the gate now, the moss is grown. The different mosses, too deep to clear them away. The leaves fall early this autumn, in wind. The paired butterflies are already yellow with August over the grass in the west garden. They hurt me. I grow older. If you are coming down through the narrows of the river Kyang, please let me know beforehand, and I will come out to meet you as far as Chofusa. I hope you enjoyed that chat. Up next will be a discussion about several excerpts from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's nonfiction masterpiece, The Gulag Archipelago, which I'm not quite sure this time if I should say I hope you enjoy, considering its content, so much as I can say that I hope that it changes you. <laughs> <laughs>